0: Hi, I'm Piper. And I'm Erin. Welcome to Off the Tracks podcast, where we explore what it means to do law differently.
1: We are so excited to be joined by Lindsay Travis and Charlotte McGee. Lindsay is a senior legal recruiter at Shopify, and prior to law school, she worked in sales and sports marketing. After getting called to the bar, she practiced in insurance defense for about four years before transitioning into recruitment. Charlotte is a senior recruiter at Shopify, hailing from British Columbia. She partners with Lindsay to recruit exceptional people for Shopify's growing legal team. Before Shopify, she practiced law at a boutique, wills, estates, and capacity litigation firm in Toronto. Before that, she made work of one of her passions, music, while working as a copywriter, online content manager, and research assistant for a record label and creative agency in Vancouver. So we are so excited to be joined by both of you today. Thanks so much for coming, Lindsay and Charlotte.
2: Thank
3: you. Thank you for having us.
1: (laughs) So we would love to hear just from everyone how their careers have evolved over time. So if you guys want to just kind of give us a brief overview
2: of how you both ended up at Shopify, that would be great. Sure. Um, Do you want me to go? I'll go first. Uh, Why not? Um, The brief overview. I mean, I feel like you covered it in the intro, certainly. Um, I Yeah. uh, After law school, I practiced for about four or five years, um, transitioned into recruitment kind of by accident. Um, It was literally like I was looking for something different and my cousin set up a coffee meeting with a woman who happened to be recruiting legal recruiters. Uh, So it really happened... um, unplanned. And then, uh, from there I did a lot of private recruitment and honestly ended up getting, uh, picked up, like grabbed by Shopify, uh, earlier this year, um, which was really exciting. And that's kind of how I ended up doing legal recruitment here.
3: That's great. And I had started out before law school working in kind of in music in in Vancouver and, um, but I had parents who were lawyers. So the potential legal career was sort of always on the docket. I also graduated with an arts degree. So, you know, everyone's always whispering about going to law school when you got a BA. Um, and then when I started out practicing, I was in wills and estates litigation because that was just the one area of law that like really got me going. I really loved the kind of very human element of it. And the, you know, there's a lot of high emotion in, in wills and estates, which is something that I, I really always enjoyed as a people person. And um, while I was in my articling year and then my year of practice, that was the thing that kind of kept coming up as being what I was most interested in was the ways that you know you would have to really work together with your clients to understand the emotions and the you know what kind of underlay their um, their story so that you could be able to be an effective advocate and then also working with my teams to uh, be able to. You know, figure out the best way to tackle a case, and then I thought, okay, well, this is what I love, and maybe I should make my career in this. And that was how I ended up pivoting into uh, a recruitment kind of opportunity, and I got really lucky to get the role at Shopify. So now here we are. Thank you both so much for sharing.
0: I think I have a bit of a selfish question that I've always been a little too afraid to ask anyone. Slash, I haven't really had anyone to ask, so I'm happy you're both here. What exactly does a recruiter and or a legal recruiter do? Because I see it all the time on LinkedIn. And I think to myself, I understand you're placing people in jobs, but sort of what is the the timeline of that? How how do you find these people? What what happens? I would just love to know more. I don't even know the right way to ask this question because I don't know what I don't know.
3: I think it definitely varies from company to company and role to role. My experience has exclusively been at Shopify. So I know Lindsay will be able to fill in the gaps for some other places too. But uh, at Shopify, it really looks like end to end from the recruitment process. So we deal with everything from uh, you know, the initial job posting and doing, helping the teams go through the candidates that apply and managing applications and all that sort of thing, all the way through to when we eventually get to, um, an offer stage. So, and all the tasks in between. So lots of interviewing, dealing with hiring managers, really working collaboratively with teams to understand the, their needs and what they're looking for in a given role. Um, and so that's the kind of high level. Lindsay, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I feel like that's that's really um
2: yeah, that's really I feel like with recruitment there's a huge difference between like an internal recruiter and an external recruiter. So being that we're internal, we're exactly what Charlotte said and our our client so to speak is Shopify, if you compared it to like being a lawyer in-house or not, like there's a difference between being external or working in private practice where you're doing client management and client development and all of that, um, versus internally, you know, your client is Shopify and we work for our Shopify hiring managers and find out what they want. And then yeah, exactly handle the end-to-end recruitment. Um, Externally, and I'm not sure if this is what you're looking for, and I'm happy to answer any follow-up questions. So before that, I was in uh, I did private recruitment and legal recruitment, and that's really really different. I mean, ultimately, it boils down to being very similar thing: posting jobs, getting applications, sifting through them, um, creating shortlists for your hiring managers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but external, there's a huge, the biggest differences are like, you know, again, you're doing a lot of client development, client management, and then it's also kind of what you're providing to the candidate, So to the prospective, um, lawyers or legal professionals, whatever, or whomever you're recruiting for, um, if this is what you're looking for, I mean, I guess if you were to reach out to a recruiter, you have to keep in mind that recruiters work for their clients. They don't work for you. And that's not to say that they're not going to help you. Um, but it's certainly something that is important to remember because I hear a lot of, um, Feedback. If I were to like say what negative feedback or feedback that I see from a lot of candidates on LinkedIn is very much like I had this call with a recruiter and then I never heard from them again. Um, And that can be really tough. And I think the kind of reaction to that I would have is, you know, we're working on recruiting professionals for our clients. Our clients pay us a contingency fee. So there is. A lot of recruiters are going to do a lot of um, career consulting. They're going to have conversations with you about kind of how to transition into different practice areas and what their clients are looking for. And they'll help you with your resume and help with your applications. But all of that is like, quote unquote, pro bono. Um, Ultimately, you know, our clients are going to pay us a fee to take a chance on not what they're looking for. Um, So I guess if that, I just only say that to say that, um, you know, if you're kind of wondering um, what an external recruiter or private recruiter is going to do for you, remember that you are not their client. You are their resource, (laughs) which is maybe a little bit blunt, but I think it's just kind of an important way to think about it. Um, But yeah, that's not to say like every recruiter is different. And certainly a lot of what we do is like career development and career help, but um, just something to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks so much for sharing a bit more about that. Do you guys usually get um, like assigned to a certain department or different working groups, or is it sort of fluid and depending on uh, what the needs are of the general Shopify?
2: community you can tell we're both just trying not to politely trip on each other (laughs) Um, So Charlotte and I recruit for the legal team. The talent inside Shopify is very large and everybody recruits for different teams and different orgs. Um, We recruit for legal. So we are currently the two legal recruiters. And that means across every function on the legal team, we have a really large legal team, Um, honestly, like a full service law firm operating inside a company. Um, So it can be recruiting any type of legal professional in all different practice areas, um, anywhere from, you know, legal assistance through, um, council directors, et cetera. So we recruit everybody
3: legal. And every now and then we'll take on a stretch role, uh, for another group or something like that. But yeah, predominantly the focus would be on anything that's legal, legal adjacent.
0: No, that's super cool. I so appreciate you sharing because I genuinely recruiting has been one of those things that I think to myself, yeah, I totally know what that is. And I totally know what that role entails. And I definitely don't. So thank you for sharing. And I was so excited when we connected with you both because I just thought, one, they work in a really cool company. Two, they both seem really cool. And three, this job just sounds um, like a really neat way to transition from your practicing careers um, into like using that legal knowledge to help others like find their place in their legal career. So I know that you both have done a myriad of different things pre-Shopify. And I know that no path is is linear in life, especially career-wise. And so something that we're curious about um, Mm. are setbacks. Erin and I both experience setbacks very regularly, it feels sometimes. And um, we're at the very beginning of our careers. And we're wondering sort of like, if there have been any major or even sometimes minor setbacks that you've had that you've learned from, um, in your time transitioning from different roles. Um, we'd love to hear a bit more about
3: it. Um, I think a setback that comes to mind for me happened a lot earlier in even before the kind of official career period. And that was when I was doing OCIs in second year of law school. And I got one interview and it was devastating because there was so much pressure at that time, you know, I think at all law schools focused on, you know, running through that OCI process and getting a good number of interviews and how that will really kind of set you up for success in the future. And, um, and I really went through a period of time where not only was I like, well, that's it for me and my future, but I was also like, this has to be a direct representation on everything that I am as a person. And it took a really long time to untangle that and realize that, you know, that actually was not the case. And uh, having the, um, you know, the space then to be forced to apply to other jobs and to figure out a bit more of a path for myself was what led me to even find my role at the Queen's Elder Law Clinic, which I ended up loving and it sparked my interest in estates. And had I not had that opportunity, I wouldn't have even set off on first, you know, getting this career in estates initially and then realizing the people aspect that I love so much. So it all ended up being a bit of a, you know, uh, an unexpected and backhanded gift, I would say. But at the time, it seemed very much like a setback. What about you, Lance? Yeah, I actually love that you brought
2: it up because I was thinking about it and I was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> where? But that's a really good one. I I had a really similar OCI experience and, uh, you know, ended up doing the in-firms and I had this firm like they had me chill in the champagne like they were like we can't wait to chat with you at 4 you know what i mean and i was like this is it my life's on track um and everything was all good and then of course it was like 4 and then it was 405 and then it was 410 and then they called me to be like hey you were number 11 and up the top 10 said yes and i remember thinking like that that's it like my life's ruined um and i was really upset Um, and, you know, again, it, it kind of forced me to learn how to apply to jobs differently. And then I think what's really been rewarding about it. I mean, being a recruiter, first of all, and being able to give people very realistic advice about what they need to do to transition areas or how to manage that you didn't get an OCI job because, you know, I have all of that experience that way, but also the firsthand experience of, um, OCIs are not the only way to get a job, like not even close. And I think that it just feels that way because that's certainly the culture and how we approach things. And it's kind of like you better get good grades in first year to apply for your OCIs. So and it just feels that that's kind of the track. And when you don't succeed that way, it can feel like the end of the world. Um, and it's just like really not. Like I ended up for articling interviews having tons of them. I was like very popular and able to get them. And, you know, you're in a whole different hiring class because everybody who is like the cool girl at the prom, the, um, everyone, um, in the other round is they're busy. They're going from summers to articling. So they're not even in your pool anymore. And suddenly you're out here with all of these firms that don't have summer programs and there are many. So yeah, I think that was, um, that's a really good one. I like that one, Charlotte.
1: Yeah, I think OCIs is a big setback for a lot of people, and um, there is a lot of focus in law school on this is the traditional path or, like, the traditional linear path towards getting a job, Um, but as you said, there are so many other firms that, for some reason or another, don't have summer student programs. Some don't even hire articling students, but have awesome associate positions available. Um, So every path is a little bit different, but there are a lot more options than just the uh, traditional role. But at the time, I definitely feel that it can really feel uh, like a a massive setback, but sometimes it really steers you in the right direction. But I definitely agree with uh, Lindsay, I had a similar phone call as well. Um, I had an infirm and it was going really well and same sort of thing. It was like four 15 and they called and they said, you are our third choice
2: and our top two accepted. What is that? Like, what is that? <laughs> like, I get it. I'm like a recruiter yeah. now and I get it about keeping candidates warm and whatnot, yeah. but like, my God, I literally was like, this is <laughs> going to be the best night. Like campaigns on ice. I'm like ready to rock here. Yeah. I remember, yeah. um, the lawyer who was like really adamant about it. Um, I like ran into him all the time later in my career and he would always like bring it up and get super sheepish. And I was like, dude, like, let, like, let's just like, let this go. Like we can't, we can't live this life anymore. He kept being like, I'm so sorry. I know I told you. And I was like, you you should be sorry. I'm glad that this is eating you up, but like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs>
1: I had a really um, awesome experience with that actually, because the um, managing partner actually took me out for lunch after. And then, um, yeah, it was like a really awesome experience. Everyone was super nice. I got emails from like everyone at the firm and um, they were really, really helpful in like helping me network after giving me advice, explaining why I wasn't chosen, how I could improve my, like they were awesome. So
3: Though it
0: was like a setback. It was probably like the best type of setback there could have been. And I think now that we're all like removed from that situation, it's so easy for us to say, Oh, like this is what I learned from it. Or this was the positive thing or rejection is just redirection. And it redirected me to this. And I got to go to these cool different roles. But in the moment, it feels so terrible. Like the things that I currently stay up at night thinking about <laughs> feels so terrible right now. Um, and I'm very hopeful that maybe three to five years from now, I'm not up in the night thinking about these things. Like um, I didn't go through the OCI process in the same way as you guys are mentioning, but I... Like all of my friends did. And so I definitely witnessed it. Um, But it's interesting now how like um, just uh, Aaron and I are just like very shortly out of law school and we can look back on that and say, oh, like this is what it taught us and this is what it taught everyone. Um, So I think that that's a really good reminder for me today when I'm thinking to myself about issues in my life and how it's so hard to have hope sometimes because the here and now is just can be really debilitating or really upsetting. Um but that was somebody's here and now a little while ago and it it did get better. So um I'm gonna hold on to that. This is this is a good yeah. conversation to remind me that it can change. Totally.
2: <laughs> Definitely hold on to that. Like I remember I think it's really patronizing when something bad happens and then someone says do you like everything happens for a reason I'm always like please stop let me be sad about <laughs> this. Um but on the on the inverse of that like there is exactly what you said. Like later in your life, you're going to look back and be like, well, that happened. And here I am now. And, um, it can be anything. It can be sometimes like when a partner gets mad at you and it feels like the end of the world. And you're like, I will never recover from this horrible feeling of just like, sludge being like pushed through my veins. But then you'll remember like three days later, like you won't care at all. And then the like second, third time that something like that happens to you, you'll be like, yeah, in three days I just will not care about this and it will be totally fine. Um and it's the same thing with the major things like not getting hired back or not getting a job in the OCI process or whatever it is. It feels like the end of the world um, because it's made to feel like the end of the world. But then you talk to people five years out and they're going to be like, oh it's totally fine. And you're going to be like, yeah, it's not though and I hate you. But trust me when they say like it will be fine um it will work out you will figure it out it will be okay i don't know not to be like oh like everything's going to be great it gets better but like it really does it really is
3: true <laughs> and i think also learning to depersonalize some of the rejections right like i think it's i had a hard time for a long time when i would face different kind of hurdles in, in really intrinsically tying them to like something that i did when at the end of the day sometimes even with hiring it's like it's it's it is so dependent also on what the team is looking for and the specific mix of skill sets that so many other candidates bring and just because somebody else would get potentially get that role at, the, at that time doesn't mean that you won't get another role at a better time that that ultimately works out you know better it's there's just it can be such a such a game of inches sometimes in a way that is just so you know I don't know. I'm lacking my words a bit here, but just part of a bigger and broader process. So that's, I found that that's something recontextualizing it that way has helped me in my own in my own life.
2: That's such a good
3: point. I feel like that's
2: something that we definitely experience so much as recruiters, and I feel like that's such a good like such a good point to be like, what as recruiters can we share with everyone? And that's like a really good way of verbalizing that. I like that. Thanks, so. yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that it also really helped too. So when the managing partner explained to me that the two people that got the job over me, one of them had like a degree in HR and it was for an employment job. One of them had a degree in HR and the other one had already done their own like representation before the labor board or something like that. So, you know, and I was just a second year student that just recently became interested in employment law. So when you like looked at the objective factors, you're like, okay, yeah, it makes sense that they got chosen over me. They had more experience and background. It's not that I'm a bad person or that I'm not good enough. It's just objectively factually true. And I think that really helps too as well.
0: So when people are looking to make a pivot in their careers or make a jump from maybe working in a firm or a clinic environment or wherever they're currently practicing law or using their law degree, what makes them an attractive candidate to pivot their career or to take their skill set, not just to Shopify, but just in the recruitment sense, like what makes them Someone who you think, okay, they might not have everything we're looking for, but they could definitely be an asset to our team. Because I think um, my friends and I talk a lot about how, um, especially maybe as women, we're not as keen to apply for jobs where we don't have all of the skills that are listed in the job posting or the qualifications. Or they're looking for someone with three years of experience and we have 18 months and so on and so forth. So how can someone market themselves um, as being able to accommodate all of the skills and meet all of the needs of the organization or the company, um, even when maybe they're lacking in a few areas?
3: I think something that comes to mind for me is even just showing interest in the company that the job is attached to. And I, I, maybe this applies less so for if you're making a pivot within a firm environment, but if you're coming into an in-house role if you don't necessarily have all of the exact experience in the job posting, but you can show that you're really, um, you know, tuned in to the company's mission or what the products are that make up the company or what it is that they're trying to do, to to show that you kind of are thinking critically and are really tuned into the overall kind of um, purpose of what the company is doing, I think is a is a really good way to catch someone's eye because it shows that you're curious and it shows that you are you know, have enough initiative to actually look in and understand what it is that you're applying for on a broader scale. And then on a more kind of skills-based, like more micro um, perspective, I think it's also, you know, looking looking at the company and again, I guess the mission. Maybe I'm just all tying this back to the same thing. Let me gather my thoughts. Lindsay, what do you think? Sure. Um,
2: I'll say, I don't say this specifically about Shopify, but just in general, um kind of like recruitment, a lot of the calls that I got and kind of what I was circling back to or kind of what I was touching upon when I was like, you know, we'll help you with your career development, but ultimately, anyway. Um the advice that I often gave candidates and I'll happily say it here is that you need to scrape for skills wherever you can and you have to also be realistic. So, being realistic and getting your skills are in my opinion like that's that's what it takes. So, um in law, like much like, you know, being a doctor, you know, we get really siloed into practice areas and you end up becoming an, a subject matter expert in a specific practice area. And then you're like, actually, turns out I don't like this practice area. How do I get into another one? And it's a really difficult thing to do. Um, and it will, it is difficult, like, period. You know what I mean? If you're an insurance defense lawyer, you're not gonna get a job as a corporate lawyer next week. It's just not gonna happen. So if that's what you want to do, you need to be realistic and scrape for skills where you can get them. So when I say that is to say that, like, okay, you've decided you want to be an in-house corporate lawyer after three years of employment litigation. How are you going to do it? So give yourself a realistic timeline and figure out what you can do. Maybe that means you have to leave the city to get a job at a smaller general practice firm that has a commercial team and an employment litigation team. And you need to start there and get onto the employment team and ask if you can get commercial work. And then when you're doing the commercial work, maybe you meet your corporate clients and maybe you start getting some corporate work. And now suddenly you can build up your corporate skill set and look inside a company and be like, hey, I used to do this, I have a broad skill set and now I am currently a corporate lawyer. So It's not to say, like, I think people um, sometimes be like, hey, how do I get into this area? And it's like, okay, you have to spend some time and scrape for skills. Um, And I would say that, like, that would be my, honestly, like, my advice to almost anyone um, that wants to, like, switch careers or practice areas um, and get a better sense. The other thing about being realistic is being realistic with your timelines, not only about switching practice areas, but, like, what jobs are going to be open for you and do your research. Like, a company like Shopify... Uh, we have a huge legal team. We have employment lawyers internally. We have litigation lawyers internally. That's pretty unique. So if you're looking for a quote unquote in-house role or a company role, or that's what you're looking for, um, decide, okay, do I want to switch areas or is it that I want to work at a company? And if you want to work at a company, do a lot of research and see what their legal teams look like um, and spend some time doing that. So yeah, it's really about being able to pad your resume to look like what, the firm or a company is looking for. And again, just being realistic with yourself about what you actually look like on paper. Um, and then of course, make yourself actually look good on paper. Um, the only thing that we have is your resume and your cover letter. Um, one thing, like I always say the recruiters will spend the most time looking at the first half of the first page of your resume compared to anything else. Um, And of course, like Shopify, we're super high touch. We really dig into people's resumes and cover letters, but that's not um, very common. Like I genuinely, like if I'm looking for a securities lawyer, if it doesn't say securities lawyer somewhere in the first half of the first page of your resume, that might be the, like all that you get. So again, building up your set and making it really obvious. If you work at a firm that people haven't heard of, it shouldn't say that you're an associate. It should say that you are a commercial associate, um, things like that. So I don't know. I think I probably answered a
3: few questions. <laughs> I totally there, agree but. with a lot of that though too, lens. I think that the that transition, that kind of skills building transition can be so important. I think it, it definitely can be more important than making a pivot in some areas than others. Like for example, even making a pivot from Uh, law to recruiting, there were enough transferable skills that like, I don't have a degree in HR. And I think that also maybe some some companies might have different, you know, uh, stances on whether or not that's something that they would require or not in making a pivot, but um, definitely like plus 1 million to the skills building aspect and it being a bit of a journey. And then also hugely agree on the resume front. I think the clarity of information and making sure that the most salient uh, information particularly to the role that you're applying for is just like front and center in your application is key because a lot of times, you know, there people will put together applications that just are not as clearly laid out and they're doing themselves a disservice because you want to make it easy for someone to look at, at your application and move you forward to the extent that you can.
1: Thank you so much for sharing those awesome tips on sort of how to navigate a transition from the recruiter's point of view. But switching gears a little bit and taking it a bit more personal, is there anything that you would change about your journey in law and in your career more generally?
2: Um, it's a tough question to answer because, you know, quote unquote, hindsight's is 20-20 and what do I love and what do I hate about my career? I mean, ultimately, I have a job that I really wanted at a company that I really wanted to work at so I can't, you know, sulk too much at night about any setbacks in my career certainly. Um, you know, I think that um if I could change anything about my tra- trajectory, you know, Gosh, it's so hard to say. Like, it's it's such a hard question. Like, I was in college um, when I got into law school, and I left halfway through my program to go to law school. And of course, I look back at people in my program and what they're doing now, and I'm envious of them. And I'm like, oh, I should have finished that. And you know, that's something. Or maybe I wanted to chase a different practice area because I really like litigation. I didn't really like the litigation I ended up doing, and it wasn't super transferable. And that was a really huge um, hurdle for me to try and get over about switching practice areas. So. Maybe I would have switched practice areas. Maybe I would have finished my college. uh, What was it called? It was an advanced degree or something like that. I don't know. Or graduated diploma somewhere like that. I don't know. Maybe I would have finished my college program. Maybe I would have tried a different practice area. Um, I mean, I don't know. I would say, I think that once you get into law school, it's really just like a rush to a job. And then it's not really until you're like in it that you start to think of what the career prospect looks like. And I think I would probably... I wish that I had like taken more time to see what I wanted my career to be um, before I was job hunting.
3: And I would really encourage my past self. And I also say this to anybody who is even considering going into law school when you're doing that kind of on the ground coffee chat research to ask people about their experiences to really be direct in asking people what they don't like about their jobs or what the most challenging parts of their roles are uh, and kind of put the heat on to get them to, you know, see what, how they answer those sorts of questions. Cause I think that people are very quick to talk about the things that they love. And that's great because I mean, obviously that's what you want to focus on. People don't want to be negative. But I think, um, when I think back to a lot of the information that I got going into law school, a lot of it, I think was quite rosy. And I went in not really with a particularly clear picture of what some of the more challenging aspects of a, of a legal practice can be. Um, And actually the one, I had a call because I'd worked in music. I went into law school thinking that I was maybe going to go into entertainment law in some capacity. And I did a cold call to um, an entertainment lawyer in Toronto and she just completely tore me down. Like it, but in a way that I respected, she was basically like, look, here's the thing, like, here are the realities of what it's like to work in this industry. And this is why it's challenging. And people come in thinking it's going to be this, this, and this, and it's not. And I was kind of like, whoa, when I got off the phone with her. But I mean, it was a very clear picture of what the challenges could be. And I think it made it easier for me then to be able, I knew the reasons why I liked entertainment and wanting to work with musicians and all of this sort of thing. But it gave me a different perspective that uh, helped me, you know, temper my expectations. And I really value that. But that's the only call that stands out where (laughs) someone really kind of went to town on the more challenging aspects. So kudos to that person, wherever they may be.
0: Whenever someone reaches out to me about law school, I think, they're in for an earful. Um, not that I had a negative law school experience. I had a great law school experience. Um, mm-hmm. But I think like letting people know the realities or potential realities of what getting a law degree means and taking that on. It's not just three years. It's uh, a lifetime of of managing sort of all of the different paths that are available to you and the finances and the pressure. Um, so I totally agree. I try and paint a very kind, but realistic picture for people. Um, so knowing that the legal profession has many challenges and knowing that you both have transitioned, uh, to Shopify, um, not without challenges, notwithstanding, because no job is rosy, perfect picture. Um, but if it is, like, please let me know. Um, we're wondering, we love to ask people, like, how do you take care of your mental health? Especially because, correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to speak on something that both of you definitely know more about, but Shopify has transitioned to being a completely remote company, if I'm correct?
3: Yeah, yeah that's That's right. right.
0: Okay. So you're both working from home. You both, I think, live in different cities, but you're like on a team together. We'd love to hear more about how you both kind of like manage all of that, you know, You just do, no, um, you do it.
2: Um, working remote has its challenges, but it also has a lot of really great benefits. Um, I think, you know, um, it was a difficult transition for me, but I also get the feedback from others that it's been like the best transition for them. So I'm very aware that I'm in the like very teeny tiny minority of people who just like scanning up and putting on a suit and going to the office. Um, don't throw tomatoes at me. That's my life. Um, so, I think everybody is definitely different as far as managing that. I mean, I really think, and this is probably the like hottest phrase of 2021, but set boundaries. Um, and that's going to be the most important way to, um, manage working from home. Um, and, uh, yeah, everything that comes with it. I mean, it's tough when you can see your computer from your couch and from your bed. So you need to do whatever you have to do to make sure that, work hours or work hours. And that doesn't mean never answering an email or never answering a message. Obviously, um, we're working across time zones and you want to get back to people quickly. And of course there's that feeling of like, "Oh, there's an offer letter out. Of course I'm going to check my email late because I really want to know what's going to happen with that. So, um, You know, there is all of that, but yeah, just being good about your own personal boundaries and work boundaries is just going to be the best way to kind of manage working remotely and it not feeling like it's completely overtaking you. Um, And I think if you have the benefit of being able to manage your space, manage your space, Um, you know, try not to like work, I don't know, maybe this is really personal, but try not to work from the same place that you relax because it can be really difficult to kind of turn things off and, and kind of shift your brain. Like I will never work in bed. It's just like not, not something that I will just never do because otherwise I will never sleep again. Um, so everybody's different certainly, but I think managing your space so physical and, um, I don't know, non-physical abstract boundaries. Um,
3: maybe, I don't know. I think that's what I would say. Sure, I, don't know. I totally agree with that. I think the other thing too about working from home is that you lose a lot of the uh, physical cues that you would otherwise get to start and stop work. Right, so like I'm a big routine person. It's just the way that my brain works. And when I was going into an office, it was like, okay, I get up at this time. I get my coffee. I got to catch the subway. I got to do this. It's like all of these different things that that cue you to move on to the next part of your day or to take a break or whatever. And when your office is inside your home, it's like you lose those cues. And it I've found that something that has really helped me is really making an intentional effort to structure in like a walk, as basic as that sounds, to make sure that I'm getting outside and you know, FaceTiming with friends or or actually seeing people in person because it, there is increased screen time now that we're that we're remote, you know, making sure that those breaks that otherwise would have come a bit more naturally in the day are a little bit more structured uh is one thing. And then um I also would say I've always been like, I, I love burning off energy through different sort of like physical activities. So I've got my spin bike, I've got my like virtual Zumba classes that I do. And it's it like, I'm sure that my neighbors are probably less fond of, of those things than I am uh, <laughs> based on uh, how much my limbs move and make noise. But um, all that to say is I think those things have really helped me, uh, me with my mental health and, and keeping it a, in a good mindset.
0: No, that's also helpful. Um, so uh, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but before people come on the for each episode, we send out like a questionnaire so people can have a bit of an idea of like what we're going to ask. And just so there are no surprises, we don't want to blindside anyone. And Charlotte, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. But we had asked this question, like, how do you take care of your mental health? And Aaron and I, Aaron texted me and went, oh my gosh, this answer was amazing because you said, I ask myself, quote, whose problem is this? So I don't end up overburdening myself with anxiety on issues that are not truly my responsibility. And sorry to put you on the spot, but would you mind sharing a bit more about that? Because Erin and I were just like, whoa, that's, (laughs) we need to do that.
3: (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. I mean, I actually, it was a piece of advice that I got from my aunt, who's a doctor who, you know, obviously is dealing with a lot of, a lot of a wide variety of kind of high emotion things that you can really take home from your day. And it has really helped me because I think, especially, you know, if you're a, if you're a perfectionist or a high performer, I think a lot of the time you want to have control over making sure that the parts of your work that you touch are, are as close to the best as they can possibly be. But a lot of the time there are certain scenarios where I think it has really helped me to take a step back and be like, this isn't my responsibility and this isn't my problem. And feeling anxiety and worrying about it is actually not going to improve the situation and nor is it going to give me any actual sense of control over the situation in, in real life. And I mean, it's a work and, and a practice in progress, obviously, because I certainly am no expert. But I think that particular mantra has really helped me, helped me with them um, scenarios where I otherwise could really go down a rabbit hole of just you know, high internal core body temperature and like (laughs) a lot of stress.
1: Yes. Like Piper said, I did text that right away because I think I need to ask myself that question a lot of times. Um, and sometimes it's not even just someone on like whose responsibility is it to do that work, but also like what other factors were out of my control in, Um, the situation, like I recently had a a big deadline given to me because the client was just put in touch with me. And four days later, this like massive application was due. Um, and I was really stressed about it, but then at the end of the day, it's like, I can only do as much as I can in four days. Um, so yes, it's my responsibility to help with it, but I can only do as much as I can in the timeframes given to me. And I, I couldn't have possibly done anything cause I didn't know about it four days prior. So, um, I really loved that, um, little reminder to ask myself, like, whose problem is this? Whose responsibility is this? Um, so I really appreciated that. We have so enjoyed having you both on the podcast, and we always like to end with the same question, which is, what is something new that you've learned recently, which can be anything, so we would love to hear from both of you what you've
2: learned recently. Oh, my God. I think I gave you, like, a really silly
3: answer. (laughs) <laughs> Don't worry, Lynn, Mine is weird. <laughs> Don't worry. Man. I'm like,
2: I'm kind of curious now. That's worried? why we love asking this question
0: because we have heard everything. We've heard from people who like, the book they're reading or the episode we aired today um the person we spoke with rachel she's a new mom and she talked about cook once eat twice so she talked about learning the power of putting meals in the freezer um so like nothing is too weird we love hearing all the weird things people have learned recently um because i think it allows us and encourages us to continue to always be curious and that's kind of what we're really trying to get at with this question is like we're all so much outside of like the nine to five or the eight to four, whatever people work. And, um, we're trying to be really curious with this podcast and I guess we're, we want to know what makes you curious.
2: Um, well I'll stick to my submitted answer only because I feel like now that this is so broad. Oh, no, oh God. Anyway, here we go. Enjoy. Um, <laughs> I will say, like I said, I feel like I learned so much all the time. Um, I'm a genuinely curious person. Like I love researching, which is honestly probably my favorite part about law was just like doing like really obsessive research. Like, Oh yes, that's where I want to be. Um, so yeah, I guess moving to that, I'm always really curious. Anytime like law comes up in pop culture, I get just like really excited to obsess over, um, you know, learning everything that I can. And I've been, um, Pretty fortunate to get to learn about really different areas of law and different jurisdictions uh, focusing on pop culture. Anyway, very recently, my new hot item, uh, because no one else has figured it out yet, is what's going on with the Tales from the Crypt trademark case is really um, exciting to me. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. Um, Did I figure it out? No, no. That I did learn um, a bit about how the trademark affects its streaming rights. Um, And it actually doesn't. Um, But I know that a lot of people thought that it did. I don't know. This is like super micro and very niche. And there's like probably one person who's like, oh, interesting. But um, (laughs) the trademark does not actually affect your ability to stream it, um, which I did confirm. It just had something to do with the person who has let the trademark lapse in the estate has also not been participating in discussions for streaming rights. So it is still a copyright issue, not a trademark issue. Those two things interact. Anyway, that's what I've learned recently, that we technically could have Tales from the Crypt streaming. We just don't.
0: And I love, okay, so I've just opened this in a tab in my Google Chrome so I can look this up later because truth be told, I've never heard of Tales from the Crypt. Ah. Um, But I love that it's a very law nerd answer and you don't currently practice law. So it's like very cool connection about how sometimes we're curious about things that are like from a bit of a past life or a past chapter and it's all good. Don't, don't stress. I still, I'm not, Oh, I'm not.
2: Um, (laughs) I still love law. Um, it was, you know, practicing that was maybe not for me, but I still love it. And I am still like super interested anytime it comes up. Like, again, if you want to read my manifestos on the Friday, the 13th case or the, um, Spider-Man case, like gladly, but, um, yeah. So there you go. My new target is Tales from the
3: Crypt. I love that. I love that. Mine is, is not at all related to law at all. Um, effectively, I got a masterclass subscription this year and then sat on it for 11 months. And now I'm like, oh, I've got to saturate my brain with all of the knowledge before January 1. So it's like, we're really doing a pressure makes diamonds scenario on me becoming a master in like 80 verticals. And this uh, this weekend I was listening to Hans Zimmer speak about film scoring. And the one piece of in of like the little tidbit that I thought was so interesting was that apparently he scores a lot of his uh music in the D minor key, because on a double bass with a C extension, which tends to be, I think, pretty common in Hollywood, uh, the lowest note that you can do that you can play while still maintaining a vibrato would be a D flat. And so when you have a vibrato on the note, it obviously gets so much more color and a lot more sort of character versus the kind of like flat sound that an open note would play. And I just thought that that was so interesting that, that, you know, that's something that just, you know, that fuels his choice on that particular key. And then I was cleaning my home. So like, wasn't a hundred percent paying attention to the rest of the masterclass, but I'm really hoping a lot of it went in by osmosis. So that's my little fact. That's the coolest
2: answer. I have so many follow-up questions that I will spare the listeners, but that is so cool. I love that. Hans Zimmer rocks. Um, Huge fan. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Love that answer. So cool. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed listening to both of you
1: share your wisdom uh, in law and outside of law. And as you guys transitioned through your careers. And we would just want to say thank you so much uh, to Lindsay and Charlotte for spending time with us today. And to stay up to date with the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Off the Tracks Podcast and stay tuned for our next episode next Tuesday. Bye!